Good afternoon from Europe. Good evening to those joining us from Asia. Uh, good morning to all those in the Western Hemisphere. My name is Eric Bergloff. I'm the director of the Institute of Global Affairs at the LSE School of Public Policy. You are most welcome to this webinar on how to reform the WTO. It's part of a series, actually the first in a series of webinars on how to uh, reform the WTO. It's a series of hustings that we are doing with the candidates to take over as Director General of the World Trade Organization. And this series is um, also part of um, our general COVID-19 series of public events. I will make it clear later on why we think this is very much related also to the ongoing pandemic. So, so the, the WTO has until recently been hailed as a, the, an example of multilateral global governance based on an understanding that increased international trade and investment, if managed correctly, could carry huge benefits for the world. And by using a sort of technocratic approach to establishing rules and regulations and setting, settling of conflicts, the WTO was supposed to be perhaps the best illustration of multilateralism, what it could do for, to foster global prosperity. But more recently, though, the institution has come, become the victim of an increased skepticism of the benefits of cross-border trade and investment. Political populism has also been exploiting some of this for more, this more nuanced view of trade for, for short-term and medium-term political benefits. Perhaps the most of the most of all, the deteriorating relationship between China and the United States has hurt WTO. In the US, all these things have come together under the Trump administration. It has actively undermined the organization by blocking the appointment of new members to the WTO appellate body, which now effectively does not have a quorum to take decisions. So, so the weakening of the WTO has been to the detriment of the global community as a whole, but it's been particularly damaging to emerging economies. Their growth strategies have relied heavily on the enforcement of rules on international markets. We have seen numerous examples of how protectionist policies in advanced economies target export from emerging economies in the interest of protecting domestic producers. Again, there are legitimate concerns about the impact of trade on local communities and how the structural changes affect certain industries. But many of the interventions in established trade regimes have been driven by short-term political uh, considerations. It may seem strange to host these hustings as part of our COVID series, but some of the most dysfunctional elements of the response to the pandemic have been in the area of trade in drugs and medical supplies. There have been hundreds of interventions by individual governments trying to restrict exports and appropriating critical supplies. A legitimate concern that these practices will intensify if we get vaccines and better cures against the effects of the COVID-19 virus. So we most likely will see even more of these uh, breaking the, the WTO rules. So the first candidate to face our scrutiny is uh, Jesus Seade, Deputy Director General of the WTO. Most recently, he was also in charge of the, on the Mexican side of renegotiating the North American Free Trade Agreement. The result, the US-Mexico-Canada Agreement USMCA for short, will come in, or came into force on July 1st. Ambassador Seattle has a long experience of international trade policy in his current position at the WTO and his appointment to GATT already in 1993.
Dr. Siade has had various academic positions and appointments in international financial institutions, including the World Bank. He also played a critical role in his country's accession to the OECD. He has published extensively on microeconomic theory, particularly on taxation, competition policy, and international trade. We're absolutely delighted to, that Dr. Siade has accepted to go first in our hustings of the candidate. We have invited a panel of experts to challenge Dr. Siade. I will introduce them as they speak. And we also want to bring in the questions from the audience and perhaps Kanoj Mohaji, my colleague at IDA, will help us um, through that part of the, of the webinar. You can use the Q&A function to ask questions and we'll also be broadcasting over Facebook and you can post questions using the comment function uh, there. We'll try to bring some of them uh, to the panel. So when you make uh, interventions or present questions, uh, please introduce yourself with your name and affiliation. But more about this when we get to the, uh, over the international inter initial intervention. So now I give the floor to Dr. Seade, please, Ambassador, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, well, I'm very grateful to the London School of Economics, to uh, Professor Dr. Berkloff, uh, to his colleague Piroska Nagy, my uh, outstanding old uh, colleague at the International Monetary Fund, for organizing this uh, very timely, certainly timely, and uh, well put together webinar. And I'm very uh, pleased to be part of it. Very proud to be uh, the guinea pig and to to be uh, to go first in that. So let me just get, give you a few starting comments. And of course, the main part of the exercise will be when I get the pleasure, the opportunity to get questions from fellow panelists and from your audience. First of all, let me just restate the obvious but very important that you have already alluded to, uh, Dr. Berglow, which is the fact that um, since uh, the end of the Second World War, when the GATT was created, uh, the system based on rules and agreed opening of trade, uh, those two levers, opening markets and rules-based uh, trade relations, has been key to global prosperity for 75 years almost now. Uh, prosperity with a reasonable basis of harmony. Uh, all this was conducted... Uh, through uh, what we called rounds of negotiations. They were called rounds because you would take a number of issues of interest to different countries uh, for them to negotiate so that there would be positive, creative uh, export interest for all of them in the one area, the other area. And so there was very solid progress through seven rounds and then the last eight rounds of that old cut that took place from the end of the 80s and into the 90s that led to the creation in 1995 of the World Trade Organization. Um, the main achievement of the World Trade Organization was to repair in a big way the main problem that had developed along the way. And this was that because trade is so political, that's what people forget. Uh, trade is far more political, more complex than other areas of economic engagement, such as investment, or, or finance, or competition even. Trade is really the devil incarnate coming to the world because that's where, where economic interaction between countries touches very directly the lives 
of workers, the lives of families, the interests of producers. Uh, that's where vested interests and, and, uh, and, and efforts to gain advantage are most intense and almost not violent, but, but full of energy in all our countries. And as a result of that, in different ways, from the 1950s, despite the fact that the gap had been created uh, with the hope of creating a harmonious base for all trade uh, to, be, uh, to be ruled by a system based on rules and mutual respect and, and mutual opening. Since the 1950s, uh, the major players decided agriculture was too complicated uh, to, uh, to subject it to the rules of trade. And so it began to effectively be taken out of the system from the late 1950s and then the 60s and the 70s, textiles was taken out of the system. Those two being two sectors of primary interest for developing countries, developing countries found a way for themselves to be taken out of the system. So major avenues were created for the obligations that countries engaged in did not apply effectively uh, in, in, in a significant measure to developing countries and so we continue to traverse the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the situation we faced when, the, when we came to the Uruguay round, to the creation of the WTO, was that major, fast expanses of economies were not subject to effective rules of trade, agriculture, textiles, intellectual property. You have lots of, uh, of agreements on intellectual property, but without trade teeth. You could not take action to defend your rights or to impose enforce your other side's obligations. Uh, there were no rules for services. There were so very many deficiencies. And the main achievement in the creation of WTO was not whatever was achieved in agriculture, which was all the headlines. Of course, it was important. It was not what, what was achieved in services or intellectual property. Each of them important. But the main achievement was that uh, the whole uh, spectrum of countries were brought in in terms of creation of obligation, obligations for them and also creation of opportunities. The main sectors of their interest were, were, were brought back. Uh, so you created a level playing field in good measure uh, across the board. I will not exaggerate it. The amount of market opening achieved in agriculture was only a down payment in a process, but it was a very important down payment and the same in textiles, and the same in other areas. So all countries had everything to gain to look for the future. But that had two implications. One, that by bringing all countries really to the table, that all countries had a major interest, major stakes in the system, it was no longer possible for big major progress to be decided primarily, sometimes almost firstly, by the European Economic Communities, as it used to be called, and the United States. In the old days, those two would agree on something, then bring in Japan, Canada, Australia, then maybe India, Brazil, Mexico, concentric circles to, uh, to make progress in the negotiations. Now, with everything being so directly subject to common rules and important participation for all countries, all countries had to be right at the table. So it becomes much more difficult to reach agreement, 
to move forward altogether. Yeah, now you have all the countries that I mentioned being frontline participants. That was one major difficulty that, that happened. And the second major difficulty that happened alongside decision-taking was that somehow the societies in our countries began to look the other way. Uh, from the 1990s begins the age of fascination with free trade agreements, which of course are very important. I have imparted to some of these, but they began to, they, they were never seen as a substitute for the multilateral system. They cannot be. You need a central board of rules and agreements from which you, you derive uh, schemes to go further, to liberalize completely between different groups of countries, such as NAFTA, United States, uh, Canada, Mexico, or the European Union negotiating far-reaching agreements with non-EU members, such as Norway or Switzerland, or Northern African countries, or, or Mexico now, uh, and so on and so forth. There are many combinations of countries that made very substantive progress in their regional agreements, but the fundamental nature of the WTO uh, was not sufficiently uh, 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 incorporated into the into the thinking of the of the of politicians and business sectors. So all the favorable headwinds that we had to create WTO 25 years ago essentially disappeared. Politicians were not thinking very much in terms of WTO. Business sectors, when I was a negotiator in the creation of WTO, there was not one week when I didn't have important business representatives from the United States or from European countries or even from developing countries, from Japan. Uh, that has long disappeared. So without the favorable headwinds and with every country demanding uh, to be part of every little decision, every single important decision. The result is that since uh, the WTO was created, it stopped conducting its number one function, which is to be a forum for continuous negotiation. So some of the deliverables that were central in the WTO creation stopped in the initial uh, down payment, for example, agriculture. So you come to, to, to the year 2020, you come to the present, and you have a WTO that has not had significant negotiations in 26 years. There have been some important negotiations, a trade facilitation agreement, a prohibition uh, on using uh, certain uh, export subsidies in agriculture. These are important, but very specific, narrow. So 26 years without significant negotiations, as a result of those uh, that lack of negotiations, all the pressure comes when you don't have new rules developed. There are no rules for electronic trade. There are no rules for many issues that have developed now with bigger players uh, internationally and with different ways of trading. Um, you have that uh, there are no rules to accommodate all that. So in addition to no negotiations, all the pressure from the changing international situation falls on dispute settlement. And as a result of that, the super important, beautiful system of dispute resolution that we created uh, went broken. So now a key component of that system, which is the appellate body, 
is, is non-functional. It cannot operate because it has no quorum. Uh, then you have major new players on the block. Uh, China was not a member. Now China is a formidably important member. Uh, developing countries have changed in the, in, in the meantime. You have countries like uh, uh, Korea, Singapore, but also countries like uh, middle powers like uh, Mexico, Brazil. And then you have not updated their participation in the system. And on top of all that, on top of non-negotiations, non-disputable system, a very complicated map of new members and changing membership. On top of all that, we get the pandemia. And uh, in fighting the pandemia, which is doing the only thing we could do, which is to try to, 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 to protect our, our, our economies from, uh, from further great loss of life, the result, one result has been a major uh, dislocation of international trade. So with all that, the WTO finds itself in a very, seri in a very serious uh, situation, very uh, problem, uh, uh, a, a crisis with many faces. And uh, uh, the way to come out of crisis is to, is to create new agreements. This normally happens in the ministerial conferences that are supposed to take place every two years. The, the last one happened three, not two, but three years ago. So the conference was supposed to take place this year, 2020, already late, already with pent up pressure to do lots of things, needed things. And lo and behold, that conference cannot take place because of the pandemic. It goes to 2021. The present director general resigns, as I think he was compelled to, to do, because uh, in normal uh, plans, on the normal plans, he would have presided over the 2020 conference to launch a new beginning and to preside over that new beginning for the next year. But now the conference will take place next year. So if he had stayed in office, he would have come to the conference here from now, when everybody is supposed to be charting the future, he will be saying goodbye, not being part of that future. So he did the only thing that he could do, and we are grateful to him for his competent work and for his dedication, and for the fact that he decided to make room for a new head to direct the system for one year or less, a few months, from now to the, to the, to the next uh, ministerial conference, so that that new director general can put together a successful conference where a new beginning will be launched, where he will be part of it. So we need a very effective, decided process of selecting the new uh, director general. Uh, eight candidates have been put forward. I will not comment about uh, their merits. Eight very distinguished people, or at least seven, the other seven, very strong candidates, very distinguished uh, candidates. All I would say is that some people have said that uh, the new director general needs to have political heft, political ability to call people to the table, to, to, to be a leader, to try to bring the system out of the deep and, uh, and multi-faceted uh, uh, crisis it faces. And I agree with that entirely. You need that ability to bring the system out, ability to negotiate effectively. Uh, but it's not enough. I really believe that you need to understand the system. You need to understand the rules. You need to understand where certain balances 
were created and why were they created. And if you take a certain decision, how does it break a given balance? What do you need to watch out so as to come out of it in a way that everybody comes with you? Uh, so you, you, you cannot possibly come from completely outside the system and hope to be part of a big discussion between the European negotiator, the British negotiator, the American negotiator, the Chinese negotiator, and the director general be part of a difficult discussion. If he's not sufficiently into the loop, he will be invited to facilitate the discussions, but he will be sidelined. So we need a leader. We need somebody who has depth on trade, trade negotiations, and also uh, a demonstrated capacity to lead in uh, difficult negotiations and to try to bring the system out in an honest broker capacity, not somebody who will bring his or her uh, particular point of view. No, it's a member-driven organization, but we need a leader to help members make sense of it. Thank you. I stop here. Thank you very much, Dr. Siad. So that was, um, I think, a very strong argument for what needs to be done and, and why it needs to be done. We're going to have a, now a first commentary by um, Sir Vince Cable. He was most recently MP and leader of the Liberal Democratic Party here in the UK. But for, before that, he was the minister in charge of the Department of, um, of um, Business Innovation and Skills in the Cameron government. And in that role, he was also president of the Board of Trade, which is um, the closest you get to a minister of trade. I guess in uh, this is before this department was uh, carved out uh, after the Brexit vote. So he, he was involved in in uh, negotiating with the EU on TTIP and 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 um, Japan and and Korea. And we are very delighted to have him as a visiting professor in practice at the Institute of Global Affairs here at the LSE. And I think you will hear the experience he has on, in this area. So, Sir Vince, please. Uh, thank you, and thanks to the ambassador for setting out the stall very well. Um, I, the first question I just want to ask is, do we feel, despite all the problems, um, do we feel that the glass is basically half full or half empty? Um, is, is, is the WTO essentially a failing institution, or is it fundamentally a sound institution with a reasonably good story to tell um, because there's an element of both. Um, I mean, the story of failure is, is obvious enough. Uh, the Doha round uh, petering out in Nairobi, um, the crippling of the appellate process, uh, the trade warfare between the United States and China, and to some extent the rest of the world with the steel, aluminium, tariffs justified on security grounds. So there is, that, that's the half-empty story. But uh, perhaps unfashionably, you know, there is a positive story to tell as well. Despite all the sound um, fury, uh, there really hasn't been a collapse into large-scale uh, rule-breaking as there was in the 1930s. Um, you know, the MFN principle is still upheld. Uh, a lot of the trade interventions are uh, remedies uh, within the rules. Um, the trade facilitation agreement we've had mentioned. Uh, a lot of the mundane work around um, country reviews is continuing satisfactorily. Uh, there are a lot of plurilateral initiatives that were launched and are going. 
uh, on information, services, procurement, environmental goods, and they achieve a certain amount. Uh, and although, it, it, in a way, it is the fragmentation of the system that we have lots of regional agreements, most of them are, you could call open regionalism. Um, and despite um, President Trump's um, belligerent language, you know, NAFTA has survived in a modified form. Um, the TPP, um, Pacific uh, Agreement has survived or been mutated in a constructive way. So I think if you put it all together, that, that I would be inclined to argue for the glass half full rather than the glass half empty. I think that my second question is what are the absolutely fundamental problems uh, that we do need to address? And I, I think arising partly from the ambassador's comments, but more generally, um, ending of the, the days of the hegemon, uh, you know, the United States would get together with the Europeans and sort things out. That can't happen now. And the major reason is China, um, now probably the leading superpower in trade terms, uh, state capitalist, you know, the fundamental question, how do you deal with the Chinese in trade policy terms? And the other which um, has been mentioned less, which is the democratization of trade policy in developed countries. I encountered this a great deal in the TTIP negotiations with the European Union and the United States. It is very difficult now when there are NGOs uh, clamoring around environmental standards, food standards, ISDS problems, very difficult to get serious trade agreements through legislatures, in mm -hmm. Europe and the United States, and um, the pretty fundamental, which is, you know, what are the strategic options for making progress in the WTO? I mean, there's no one obvious way forward, but I'll just enumerate what seem to me the three most likely. I mean, one is that with a new Director General, there is a serious attempt to relaunch a major multilateral comprehensive process and for the reasons I think we've both given that's going to be extremely difficult. I mean the second is to have a more modest uh, qualified um, process concentrating on some of the remaining low-hanging fruit you know the, the least developed country issues maybe trying to get some um, genuine multilateral agreement on the environmental issues and the climate change implications of trade policy. So a limited process. And the third, which is less exciting, but seems to me a perfectly viable future for the WTO, is a kind of care and maintenance uh, arrangement where it's the forum where the WTO oversees existing agreements, bilateral agreements, plurilateral agreements, uh, to try to ensure that they conform as far as possible to WTO principles, that they are open rather than closed arrangements. Um, I say that's not exciting. Uh, it doesn't result in a grand declaration. But if the WTO succeeded in doing it and doing it well, that would be a significant achievement. So those are my responses and views. Thank you very much, uh, Vince. So 
He will be joined now by Swati Dengra, who's an associate professor in the economics department here at LSE. He's worked extensively on international trade and globalization and received many awards for her innovative work on firms and globalization. She's been deeply involved in trade policy in the UK and in Europe, but she's also deeply committed to understanding the impact of globalization in her native India. So, Swati, please, the floor is yours. Thanks, Eric. That was far too uh, low to tree, but I'm glad to take it for right now. So let me start with saying um, the some of it is going to be repetitive because, of course, the big issues that we see are the ones that both ambassadors said and servants have pointed out. So I'm going to start with sort of really highlighting that ambassador said previously mentioned that the Walker principles and a few fresh ideas that he has will break the impasse of the WTO. And it would be great to sort of hear from him how the fundamental problems that we think led to a much bigger sort of impasse of the WTO, which is subsidies and China, how those are fundamentally going to be addressed and what is the progress that you expect you can make with the US and with the EU in tow. The second point I want to make is that possibly these issues about subsidies in China are going to become much harder to resolve now primarily because almost every country wants to have a subsidy regime in place to be able to create jobs. And China seems to be, of course, still doing better. And many of the same issues that we heard previously, that the U.S. has a massive trade deficit with China, somehow COVID hasn't changed all of that overnight. And that's possibly going to continue. So many of the fundamental problems are going to remain and possibly even get strengthened with COVID. The second point I want to get to is that is it the case that the WTO will continue to have a much sort of smaller role when it comes to the world economy because of all these new forms of globalization, which you mentioned yourself? And many of them have cross-cutting issues with trade, but they don't seem to be under the purview of the WTO. And they aren't very well dealt with in terms of, for instance, digital services tax at the moment really being talked about at the OECD and the G20. While, of course, that has something which has implications both for FDI and for trade, and how is the WTO going to cooperate with all of these institutions? The third point I want to make is that it's supposed to end on a sort of half-full note that Sir Vince pointed out, which is that maybe there is some scope and some room for the WTO to do something, and that in some sense the pandemic has helped on those fronts, that we can all agree now that we do need some kinds of agreements about global public goods, whether that's health, inputs or whether that's environmental aspects and also that trade in goods is now going to be something which is going to stay with us much more than say trade in services stayed with us and that's something where the WTO doesn't have a very good track record while when it comes to trade in goods it has a fairly good track record where it doesn't have a good track record even on these new these issues which may be a COVID safe in some sense is that a lot of countries have responded with really strong protectionism when it comes to new forms of protectionism. We're going to do it through FDI norms. We're going to do it through subsidies that we pass on. And somehow the WTO didn't handle it very well previously. And what is going to change now to make sure that these kinds of agreements are in place, that the subsidy wars that we see are not where battles are fought rather than tariff wars. I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Swati. Ambassador, I was going to give you the floor now to maybe make some responses to what you've heard. And uh, absolutely. Let me first of all say that it's a great pleasure, as I said at, begin, at, the, at the beginning, but in particular to be talking to uh, to uh, Dr. or Professor Cable. Uh, as you may uh, have noticed from my CV, I spent many, many years in the UK. In fact, as an adult, it is in the UK where I have lived the most 
more than in Mexico, more than in China, more than the United States or Switzerland, which are places where I have lived for a number of years. And I certainly was a great admirer of, uh, of uh, the energetic and exemplary politician uh, from the center uh, uh, parties that uh, was uh, Mr. Cable that uh, I, I think brought a lot of good to, I, I will not talk about politics anymore. I stopped there, but I just expressed my admiration and pleasure to be talking to you. Uh, of course, Dr. Dingra as well, but uh, it, it's a pleasure to, to, have, to have your comments. Is the, the WTO half empty, half full? Well, of course, I mean, uh, as I said before, uh, it has been a complete failure to continue to make progress, but progress on a very important institution that was created. I really believe it is a fundamental piece of uh, global architecture. And if we didn't have the WTO, we'll have to reinvent it right now. Uh, hopefully following the blueprint, so it, it takes us less than eight years to do so, as was the case uh, back then. But it is a very necessary organization. Not only necessary, despite the failure to do a number of important things, as I said, big negotiations and, uh, and uh, the, the collapse of its appellate body and so on, uh, it has had a very important role. Uh, it has been the keeper of the rules. Much more importantly, in a discreet, unseen way than in the actual debates in, uh, in, the, in, 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 in the WTO premises in Geneva. Uh, for example, I just completed the negotiation of the big replacement of the old NAFTA. We all know that the, that the, the motivation for this was uh, President Trump's uh, frustration with the fact that a number of, uh, of uh, companies, particularly in the car industry, also in the steel industry, but particularly the car industry, had migrated, uh, for example, to Mexico. Uh, I, I, I don't want to guess for the United States what they would have done, but I would not be surprised if, had we had this renegotiation of NAFTA in the absence of WTO, without anything or with something like the old GATT in place, I'm pretty sure I would have expected that the negotiation would have been on the basis of excluding altogether the, for example, the car industry. Let's have an agreement without the car industry in it. Mexico would have said, what? It is the sector of most fundamental interest for me. But the United States would have said it is a sector of greatest headaches for me. And both statements would have been with a good basis. I certainly can see and understand fully the American perspective. Mexico had three decades of repressed salaries and uh, lots of things that made the competition not exactly very peaceful in that sector. And uh, when I was uh, an ambassador in Geneva, I remember uh, chairing the examination of free trade agreements between some Nordic country and some countries in Northern Africa and the like, where agriculture was entirely excluded. And the other country would say, why is it excluded? Or members of the debate would say, why is it excluded? And the response was, oh, because the, to satisfy the letter of the agreement, uh, the free trade agreement has to uh, cover substantially all trade. And there is no trade in agriculture within our countries. And of course, the reason for there being no trade was that agriculture was closed in that country. Uh, so you have 
rules that were very lax and uh, lending themselves to a lot of manipulation of trade relations, manipulation of trade policies, which is exactly what had led to the creation of the GATT in the first place. The fact that manipulation of, uh, of trade relations, manipulation of exchange rates uh, in the 1930s, according to no less than Cordell Hall, a particularly great American Secretary of State, uh, father of the United Nations, and father basically indirectly of the creation of the GATT, because he was the one who authored uh, legislation in the United States uh, in the 1930s that uh, demanded uh, basically equitable treatment of, uh, of other countries. Um, he said that it was because of discrimination in trade that Europe had fallen into the Second World War. He was not blaming any particular head of any particular government. He was saying it was discrimination that led to that. So I really believe it's, it's very important. And the reason why we have not fallen to that is because the WTO does not allow it at all. So I believe the WTO has kept a modicum of rules or a substantial amount of rules being respected in all that proliferation of, of regional trade agreements, uh, has led to some successes in, uh, uh, through the plurilaterals that have been mentioned and, and some of the agreements. But yes, there is a major lack of advance advancement, progress, progress that has to be met. Now, the main challenges, uh, please forgive me, but are not exclusively across the Pacific. There are very major challenges across the Atlantic as well. Uh, the appellate body reflects uh, very much uh, uh, the, the, the clash of mentalities between European negotiators and American negotiators ever since the creation of the WTO. And uh, that has to be addressed, solved, in a way that satisfies both. And the main cleavage here is transatlantic. So we need to bring together Europe and the United States on something as fundamental as dispute resolution. Then we have lots of countries feeling the uneasy arrival of China as a major power uh, uh, in the room, a major elephant in the room, and, uh, and there has to be progress on a number of issues in relation to China. The flexibilities for developing countries. Uh, the, the, of course, China is also very interested on the, on the appellate body in dispute resolution. Uh, there is the work that the United States, Europe, and Japan are doing on industrial subsidies. They say they, they need to negotiate. I have no recipe on that. All I can say is, well, they will have to work out with China and I will be a forceful, helpful uh, intermediary seeking to find a way for them to be able to negotiate something that they have to find a, a way to agree. And the final point made by a professor, if I may call you Professor Cable, uh, Professor, uh, you, you referred to uh, other particular areas of uh, strong interest for some countries that may not be sufficiently looked after by WTO. I think you mentioned the least developed countries. And on that, I really feel very strongly. Uh, the analogy that I use uh, comes from nowhere, no, no, no less than a, a, one of the ultimate uh, British institutions, which is the Wimbledon Tennis uh, Championship, where of course all the attention goes to center court. And center court in international negotiations, if whatever happens between Europe and the United States, and now Europe, United States, China, Japan. 
and where everybody else has to fit. So it's also, it's also the center court is crucial also for Brazil and for Turkey and for Africa. But it cannot be the only attention. It is fundamentally important. We have to resolve the issues in center court. But we need to have a dedicated attention in court number one to the least developed countries. In court number two, to the landlocked economies. In court number three, to the small island economies. In court number four, which is the issues that everybody faces as a result of the pandemic, which takes me to one of the key questions, very important question by Professor Dingra. Uh, we need to develop special rules, not necessarily uh, opening the ante too much, turning over the WTO in attention to COVID, but we need to be ready to face a new pandemic three years from now, five years from now. So we need to develop systems to make sure that countries will always be able to import medicines and to import essential uh, foodstuffs that they may need despite restrictions by other, uh, other countries. We need to be able to, we need to create systems whereby when a pandemic hits, all countries can move to emergency mode in a more orderly way than this time. So to immediately kick in with a system of notifications, a system of exchange of information, a system of minimal coordination, which can only happen in WTO. Uh, so all those things are crucially important, uh, but I would say that, uh, that they require all the attention of the members without distracting from center court. I believe I touched on some of the main issues. Dr. Diagra also spoke about uh, all the different uh, subsidies issues that are uh, arising. And I think that belongs with the fact that arises from the fact that the world is not the same as 26 years ago. 26 years ago, creation of WTO, important uh, measures were taken, agreements were reached to uh, stop some of, the, some of the subsidies and begin to redress a balance. But nobody was counting on 26, 26 years happening without major movement on that. So for example, in agriculture, you froze inequity, but inequity there was okay because you were converging towards a better and better, more liberal world. What kind of inequity am I talking about? Well, if a country had big subsidies, its commitment was to reduce the big subsidies. If a country had small subsidies, its commitment was to reduce the small subsidies. So you are enshrining the fact that the big subsidies are always bigger. But if they are falling, it is convergence towards something more desirable. But if you stop to negotiate, then the inequity becomes more of a problem. That's what we have, for example, in agriculture. It's one of the issues that needs to be addressed. And then in industrial subsidies, uh, countries are uh, alleging that the present system is not enough and you have huge economies in the system. So all of that has to be discussed by the countries. It's a member-driven organization, but we need a strong forum to bring them together and talk and negotiate. Thank you very much, Ambassador. So, so um, we have a lot of questions uh, coming, but I, I was going to take the, the privilege of the, the, the chair to, to post you one question. And, and of course, you're uh, using Wimbledon. was unfortunate, I guess, because as you know, Wimbledon was cancelled this year. <laughs> and the, you, the way you can enjoy Wimbledon this year is to watch old games. Wimbledon was cancelled as the WTO 
ministerial conference was cancelled. Yeah, but exactly. will be very good next year. Yes, exactly. And I was going to come to that. So I think it's uh, even though we are now watching uh, old movies uh, of of uh, what's happened, uh, we are confident that Wimbledon will be back, and and we hope that WTO will be back. But of course, part of WTO coming back is the the appellate body, and you you said something about you know how this is really uh, reflecting mainly tension between sort of the EU European approach to 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 trade or to conflict resolution and then US. Could you say something more about how you want to get out of that? And in particular, what do you say to these attempts to or threats to create a a parallel resolution uh, process where you, you know, excluding, for example, the US and, and uh, do you think, what is the prospect of that and how would you see that coming from the WTO? No, I would be dead against that uh, alternative system if it actually excluded the United States or anybody else. Uh, I find it acceptable uh, because it does not exclude anybody. It is open to everyone. Of course, the United States has not uh, joined because they don't find it uh, agreeable I believe mainly because they see it as a as a way to perpetuate the present system. And if that were the case, I would I would agree with them. So if it were to exclude anybody, I would not like it. If it were to be a means to perpetuate the present system, I would not like it. The reason I have expressed myself in positive terms towards this uh, European Union creation that has been joined by 22 members is that it is explicitly offered as a stopgap measure. It's a temporary solution. The main business has to be to repair the dispute settlement system, the appellate point. Now, I I believe that one is an extremely grave problem, very serious problem. It's a huge problem, but I think it is fundamentally a problem that can be resolved. So, in a very daring way, in my presentation to WTO, I said that I would envisage if there is willingness from the members, so with the participation of members, because the director general decides nothing, with the participation of members, I would see that as being uh, handled, dealt with in the first 100 days of the new director general. Why do I express myself in such a relatively optimistic terms, in ter- optimistic in terms of timing, ability to do it quite quickly? The reason is that I read all the statements by the United States that are many and very strong about the appellate body, and not one uh, sentence appears to cast doubt on the acceptability of the legal system as it exists. They are not seeking to change it. In many countries, many members, many members uh, have been Uh, not equally, but have also criticized the appellate body after rulings of the appellate body where they lost or where they didn't even take part. But they look at it and members very often have systemic interest in the way things are resolved. Have also complained, often similar complaints to the American complaints, that the appellate body, uh, instead of ruling on a narrow issue in front of them, gave uh, 
observations of a broader nature uh, that were not part of part of its business that the pellet body uh, is is essentially practicing uh, jurisprudence which is nowhere in the agreement there's not one sentence that speaks of jurisprudence in that sense it's a completely radical civil law system where you have the law in front of you you apply it uh, and uh, the appellate body has erred in different regards according to allegations or it has uh, erred also in relation to logistical questions such as after the retirement of, of one appellate body member uh, he or she has continued to handle the case that uh, he or she was already handling and there's no provision for that uh, or that uh, appeals have taken longer than they should so all that is true uh, and, and not many members dispute that at least much of that is true uh, as a result of that the present chairman of the council of the wto ambassador new zealand ambassador uh, 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 worker um, consulted extensive consultations from 2018 to the bulk of 2019 and came up with six recommendations known as the Walker Principles. And these I find very wise. Uh, they are effectively reaffirmations of the law as it is, the dispute settlement understanding, but reaffirmations where you can add emphasis, add language to, to be more precise on how this or that can be decided. But they are fundamental reaffirmations. And the United States has said, that doesn't help me. This is a reaffirmation of the system we have under which the appellate body has gone where it has chosen to go. How does that help me? And uh, I understand that. What I think is missing is the, to make the following connection, uh, Professor. There is the ultimate authority on dispute resolution called the dispute settlement body. It's the ultimate authority. The appellate body exists under the authority of the dispute settlement body, but the appellate body is fully autonomous. So being fully autonomous, you may feel, well, I decide what is my, my, my work, my whatever. So you may, you may be uh, free to, uh, not necessarily to stick. There's no line of communication. The supervisor has no spelt out line to exercise with the supervisee to exercise that supervision. It just the authority. We don't know how. And there's the challenge of the fact that the supervisee is fully autonomous. Well, I believe that we need to reaffirm the full autonomy of that supervisee, the full autonomy in every single appellate, uh, appeal, in any single case. Full autonomy. But I would recommend the creation of some mechanism, and I have my ideas, but I prefer not to not to vend them here because it is for members to decide. But we need to create a mechanism, spelled out mechanism, controlled by the dispute settlement body, under which the dispute settlement body exercises that generic supervision of the generic work of the appellate body. After two years of work, have a concerted look at what they have done. Have they erred again or have they erred? Well, then maybe you issue a decision or you call the appellate body to a meeting or whatever. Have they not? Business as good as usual, and we continue. So I think that this articulation of the relationship between the dispute settlement body and the appellate body is what is missing, and we need to create it. And I have my ideas how to create it. 
Uh, with that and some of the ideas I have in mind uh, on rotation of uh, the legal expertise, I would hope that the United States will come to the table and find a way to find a result this very thorny and very important issue. Okay, thank you very much. I think that was a, a very interesting uh, response and, and rich response. Uh, Vince, do you have any quick comments before I give the floor to Marmoroska? Okay, Piroska, please. Yeah, the, the ambassador summarized the issues extremely well. I, I think actually with the present um, United States administration, it's a bit more fundamental though. I mean, they reject the whole idea of sovereignty being lost in the same way that the British have you know, rejected the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. And I think it's quite deep rooted. Um, and then there was also the sense that they lost some bad cases. And, you know, this was long before Trump, you know, they lost to Costa Rica over textiles. It was considered a terrible humiliation. Um, and I think in recent years, um, you know, three quarters of the American cases that were referred uh, were regarding China and the fact that they couldn't get to resolution of those problems through the appellate system contributed to some of the disillusionment that Trump has built on. You know. But I, I think the ambassador's forward-looking suggestions are absolutely right. Just to comment on uh, on what has just been said by Professor Cable, uh, that's what I was talking about, that uh, if you don't negotiate for 26 years, then any uh, emerging or increasing or worsening uh, disagreement on the rules can only be resolved through uh, dispute resolution. You have to effectively legislate through dispute resolution. And that's nowhere the, the, the idea. That's not the way. It, sh it shouldn't be the case. Uh, it certainly should not be the case. And even if there's no further agreement on rules, development of rules, uh, dispute resolution should be applying the rules as they exist. But it is this tension that has led to this double tension, this tension between lack of progress on rules uh, informed by the difficult relationship between the United States and China uh, that has ganged up, if I may say, on the dispute settlement system and made it inoperative. So everybody loses as a result. You're muted. Yeah, thank you. Yes, yes, I have to unmute myself. Thank you so very much. Uh, Ambassador uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Seade, old colleague, uh, this was fascinating, and and a lot of the issues already, uh, the questions that uh, that uh, are flowing in uh, from the audience, uh, you the discussion among the panel members and, and your presentation and the follow-ups uh, have already touched upon. So let me uh, try to regroup them a little bit. Um, you emphasized the role of politics that usually doesn't get. Uh, such a front row um, um, uh, perspective in, 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 in discussing um, uh, the role of a global institution. We usually, as economists, focus more on the economic, a little bit political economy, but you've so squarely put politics into the center of, 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 uh, as an additional important um, dimension of understanding what the WTO should be about and how it should be, should be uh, reformed. Um, so in this regard, there are several questions. Um, uh, many people, uh, many of the audiences, for example, Gayatri uh, Kargun Kar uh, asks um, about the very obvious and apparent protectionist um, measures and instincts that, uh, that, that are there, particularly after, uh, in the context of the uh, COVID pandemic, 
in particular about the vaccine uh, and the medical uh, supplies uh, related to the COVID pandemic. So there are a lot of, there has been a lot of protectionist measures already, and there are, the sense is that there is an increased instinct to do more protectionism um, in this sense, in, 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 in the current context. So you as a leader, uh, you as, you know, obviously, very knowledgeable about the trade, but also a, a chief negotiator of the, of the second NAFTA. Um, how would you address this? How would you, how do you listen to, to countries where the, the voice is often for protectionism? How do you argue? What are the key tips, the points? And maybe you can give up some tips from, from your negotiation uh, of, of NAFTA to the, the, the USMCA uh, more uh, appropriately. So what, what are the priorities? How you, how you address this? How you, how you address protection, nationalist protectionist instincts in, in every country that we face, particularly under the pandemic? Well, um, there have always been protectionist pressures. Whenever you change a system, there'll be winners and there'll be losers. And it is very well uh, established by uh, proper economic analysis and by even cursory uh, examination of history and experience that by and large, open trade benefits countries as a whole. But at the same time, when you open, there will be uh, industries, sectors, workers, business uh, owners, uh, regions maybe that may lose because you are opening up whether they are good at, you are opening up the trade and there may be another country that is even better at doing the same thing. The only reason all this makes sense is because on balance, it is well established analytically and historically, on balance trade is good. Trade has taken hundreds of millions of people out of extreme poverty and, and, and trade has driven lots of countries up the income scale. So trade on balance is good, but opposition to trade is universal in general. So we really need to uh, do many things. One is that countries need, just as WTO needs, uh, leadership, leadership to argue forcefully the case for mutually reinforcing, mutually beneficial uh, trade measures that will bring uh, pain, maybe in some cases, in which we have to address collectively in an appropriate way, and the countries have to address internally through income expenditure measures and retraining, whatever. But basically, leadership to address the issues uh, and uh, special consideration of particular issues. For example, now with the pandemic, we have uh, powerful calls that I understand perfectly well for, uh, for uh, uh, food security, for example. Food security should not mean food self-sufficiency. That would be crazy because food self-sufficiency means denying the benefits of uh, of trade, it means uh, making uh, Sweden or Finland into a major producer of strawberries because they lack strawberries uh, or pineapples, which is not what they are best at doing. They are they are better at doing other things. So trade is good, but uh, but you do need uh, to listen to the claims by some countries that they need to improve their position vis-a-vis -vis emergencies. 
uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, we have to look at things historically. And you used to be in the IMF, you will understand perfectly well what I'm talking about. Uh, with the arrival of the 1980s, maybe, uh, we had a big swing, worldwide swing, towards liberal economic policies. So the world was a lot more interventionist, including the UK and Germany and the US and every country were more inclined to intervention in the 1970s, 60s and 70s. And then in the 80s, uh, we begin to have a big swing uh, towards uh, more liberal policies uh, led by uh, Madame Thatcher in the UK, Ronald Reagan in the US, but also it was a flavor of the time internationally. And this became very extreme probably after the turn of the century. And uh, many people feel that the 2008 financial crisis was at least in good measure the result of having believed, having placed too much store on the values of the free, 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 unchecked market. So we are now living, it's only a, a few months after the 2008 crisis. In, in a historical perspective, we are living the redress of a tendency towards more involvement by governments that I think is absolutely appropriate. More involvement by governments, more preoccupation with what happens, more preoccupation with the fact that technology, open trade that we all espoused, combined with technology that made worldwide trade cheaper, meant that if you're in Argentina, you can perfectly well look at the catalog and consume something that comes from Korea or from the United States or from China. And one result of that has been that winner takes all very often. You have gigantic corporations. That makes everything more efficient. That makes the products cheaper for the consumer. There are many good aspects to that, but tell that to the small producer in any country, in, in, uh, in high street, uh, in some British town, or in, uh, in, in, or in Mexico or anywhere else, where the small grocer has lost, where the small and medium enterprise has lost. You were asking me for something to learn from the USMCA. Well, I'll give you one. One uh, bit of jewel, one jewel from that agreement, mm -hmm. and this is that precisely because of this pressure from dissatisfied sections of society, we created a wonderful whole chapter on creating space for governments to protect small and medium enterprises because there are many things that you can do for them mm -hmm. that, if you think of it carefully, is not distortionary is not messing up with the market, but that may be forbidden under, under uh, free trade rules. Mm -hmm. So you can, for example, mm -hmm. uh, work with the small enterprises in a particular industry, mm -hmm. shoe makers or textiles or something. Maybe you help them create consolidated financing vehicles help them create a, a, a public body that will help them create syndicated borrowing that will lower the interest rate or, what will, or, or that will help them uh, coordinate, unify their procurement, their purchases, so they can purchase as bigger and they can purchase from Korea and not only locally. 
so they become more competitive. Or maybe even create a brand, a brand that is composed of 50 small producers. All those things can run into regulatory difficulties or all the kinds of difficulties, but we have created a chapter in the USMCA mm -hmm. to facilitate all that, mm -hmm. that will hopefully help us uh, meet, not politically, but effectively, economically, meet some of the concerns that have been raised against free trade and against the old NAFTA. So I think we, we have to be proactive in checking the problems that have arisen, because problem ha problems have arisen with the unchecked uh, free market mentality of the past, and have a more balanced approach based on open trade, but governments that also have a role to play. Excellent. Thank you so much. That was a tremendous insight into, into a very difficult question. In a sense, can I ask you, um, effectively, with, with this new chapter uh, on uh, protecting small-medium enterprises, um, you seem to have addressed the fundamental question that is being posed to politicians about trade today to, in, 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 in sovereign countries, and that is whether trade is job-creating or not job-creating. This is, it boils down to that. And if you capture it with the SME uh, industry, which is, which is a job-creating uh, faculty, then it seems that you address, uh, you manage to address uh, that, that fundamental question that is on the minds of, of, uh, of, of society. I guess you're right, although I see it more in terms of income distribution. That uh, you mm -hmm. tell me which country, you tell me which country uh, from Liechtenstein to China <laughs> has not had an increased concentration of income in the last uh, 30 years. I don't know about Liechtenstein, but, uh, <laughs> but I think it's all over the world. But two issues have developed, contradictory issues have developed affecting income distribution. I think by and large, you can say that the poorest have benefited from globalization. So the poor, the extreme poor have moved up to poor or even to middle class. So in that sense, it has been beneficial. But probably the middle class in many countries has disappeared, whereby the rich have become super rich. So income disparity across the full spectrum of income distribution has become more unequal. So I think it is valid to take measures that will help people trying to, trying to cut through that uh, disparity and, uh, and, and move up the, the income, income uh, distribution scales. I see it more in that light that uh, income concentration is something that uh, maybe to some extent in some contexts inevitable, but it is for uh, governments to see what we can do uh, without upsetting the efficient market, we're trying to help the people who could help themselves to move on. Mm -hmm. The next question I, I, I'd like to um, pose actually to the two other panelists to give you a little break uh, and also hear their views. Um, there are quite a few questions about the how exactly the subsidy reform, both in rural and agriculture, could take place. So I, I'd like to ask uh, um, uh, Servin Scable first, and then maybe uh, Swati, uh, our colleague at LSE. What, how exact? This is obviously a fundamental question, but how to address that? What would be your advice to um, Ambassador uh, Seade when he starts on his new job? 
uh, if he's elected, what would be your advice to him how to address this, this fundamental question? And then I turn to you, um, uh, Mr. Ambassador. Vince? Well, I mean, the first step is to have transparency. I mean, the, the problem in the agricultural mm -hmm. sector has always been there are a lot of complicated interventions that drive a wedge between local prices and world prices. And indeed, you know, despite the hostility of the British and others, you know, the European farm policy has been reformed. And one of the key steps was quantifying the interventions. And once you've quantified the interventions, you can then start to make them more digressive, you know, liberalization. So, I mean, it's a two-step process, transparency leading to liberalization. But before I, I move on, can I just quickly add a point to the discussion before on, on politics? There are two quite different problems here. That there are countries like the United States, France, um, India, probably, where there's a long tradition of justifying protectionist trade policies. Mm -hmm. And there are another group of countries, the UK is a good example, the Scandinavians, probably Germany now, which have embedded free trade into their culture. And, you know, under socialist governments or right wing governments, it's not an issue. Um, but they both have problems now with the trading system. I mean, the protectionist countries, for obvious reasons. But if you're even in a liberal country like the UK, uh, there was tremendous hostility to um, the free trade agreement with the United States, not on the grounds of competition with our car industry or whatever, but because of genetically modified foods, uh, I worry this would destroy environmental standards, um, the disruption of, of public services, um, kind of public interest type arguments. And the, the, both in the UK and in Germany, they were, trade negotiators were flooded with complaints about these issues. So when we talk about politics, there are different issues here. Um, Anyway, thank you, Prosky. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much for um, adding uh, this this important point. Swati, may I ask you your advice uh, to the ambassador when he starts off his uh, how, how to handle uh, this whole issue of subsidization um, in across sectors? I'm really pessimistic that that's ever going to move <laughs> in a very big way. But in general, I think there are some legit some legitimate concerns, as Sir Vince just pointed out, that it was going to be about chlorinated chicken, that all the disagreements were going to be. And I think there are good reasons for keeping that sort of, you know, level of regulation. And But we have to recognize that for, say, African farmers or Indian farmers, those kinds of sanitary requirements are very high. And therefore, you know, possibly higher levels of technical assistance are what is needed there. So I, I don't think that the subsidy issue particularly is resolvable in the near future. I think I, I, I seem much more, I, I feel much more pessimistic about it, particularly coming from a place like India, where servants mentioned, yes, there will always be tendencies to try and protect the farming sector. Uh, could one say that, um, one heard the, the argument that the pandemic, uh, the COVID-19, actually um, may have eased the way to address subsidy, subsidy and also the issues of uh, non-market uh, players, the issue, of, uh, the whole issue of uh, state enterprises and, and related um, dimensions. Um, because more as a part of the paralysis, more, more countries uh, res uh, re you know, use um, uh, subsidies one way or the other. So is it, does it make it 
easier or, or more difficult the pandemic to, to address the subsidy issues post, post uh, the pandemic. Yeah. Is that intended for me? Yeah, to you. Mm -hmm. Okay, great, thanks. So I'm just going to sort of remind you what happened sort of, I don't want to compare the current pandemic crisis with the financial crisis, but I think in this case, it's sort of instructive to remember what happened. When the EU-India FTA was being negotiated, one of the big sticking points, of course, was going to be dairy subsidies. And at that point, everyone thought that, again, it would become easier that after the financial crisis has happened, we're going to be able to move past these issues, think about other issues, didn't really happen. And probably it was a good thing that it didn't happen. If you look at sort of the level of subsidization for dairy that's happening even sort of in one small country like Denmark, as opposed to the bulk of dairy farmers in India, that's possibly not something which is sort of tenable that you expect to open up agricultural markets. I think the subsidy issue would need to be addressed before that, but our country is going to be willing and are, is it really in their interest to want to do that? Because it's not just about sort of increasing economic efficiency. This is seriously about the kind of way of life that you want to have. So I think it's very hard for us as trade economists to pass a judgment on those kinds of issues. Okay. Thank you. So, Mr. Ambassador, I'm turning to you. You got two very good advices uh, uh, to this question. What will be your agenda uh, to, uh, to start address, and hopefully more optimistically than Swati <laughs> expressed uh, her, her sentiment uh, about the likelihood of success? Well, yeah, I, I have to agree with, uh, with her and with uh, Professor Cable also that it is a, 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 an extremely difficult issue. So it's a, it's a tough negotiation that has to be engaged. It has to be engaged. It is uh, central. Uh, the members have four negotiations on the way now that have been completed, but down in the horizon as a must for the time of the ministerial, less than a year from now, uh, has to be the launching of a serious negotiation in a balanced way, a number of areas that give enough to different countries, but central to which has to be agriculture. And in agriculture, the question of, uh, of uh, distortionary subsidies uh, alongside market taxes has to be an important part. So I would agree with the Professor Cable that transparency is the first step. It's a major step. That's very important. And it certainly helps a lot. Helps a lot in its own right, it also helps a lot to be able to negotiate. Mm -hmm. um, then, uh, liberalization, uh, he mentions uh, issues that need to be handled, uh, which are thorny, is, is one of them, relations to the environment and to, and to genetic uh, manipulation policies and all this. Uh, these are important issues, but the core problem here as a as recognized by uh, Dr. Dingra, is, uh, lies with the agricultural subsidies. And the main problem in relation to the agricultural subsidies is the fact that history has moved on from the creation of the WTO. So this is where I was talking about that you have uh, certain uh, uh, subsidy commitments that come from all that time back, where if you have subsidies this big, you are committed to bring them down by a certain percentage. If your subsidies are lower, you're committed to stay below. But time passes, and then some countries feel that uh, to protect their, their population, their sector, they need to move up. These are extremely hard issues uh, where I cannot even guess what can be the outcome. These are central questions for negotiation between the countries. 
And uh, I can see every point of view. There's no negotiation that has a single point of view because that negotiation is one that would way to solve very quickly. But here, I, I, I can see the problem. And it's something that, that needs to be addressed by the countries. And I would be uh, very involved uh, trying to generate this dialogue. But uh, this is the issue between traditional kind of uh, subsidization in countries that... Uh, that were able to do that in the 1980s and 90s, and, uh, and the needs or, or, or practice of uh, countries closer to this point in time that say, hey, no, you're telling me that I use not subsidized, therefore I should not, not subsidize. It's a problem. One has to find a way for everybody to accept the adjustment and to move forward. To the extent that a negotiation is successful, to what extent those issues become less prevalent. But it is for the members to decide. Okay, understood. Thank you very much. Uh, another question that you, you have touched upon, but it, it's coming up from Christian Delev, for example, from Bulgaria. He's asking how you would reconcile the WTO, which is obviously a, a global institution, with the myriad of uh, regional trade arrangements. Uh, on his count, it's like 490. So obviously, there are central ones, there are less important ones. Um, what is your approach to that? Yeah. Well, since the GATT system was created, an article was created, uh, well, I, I, backtrack, rewind. Uh, the central idea of the GATT system is non-discrimination. So everybody will face the same uh, tariffs if they want to export into your country. Everybody. Okay? Now, the major exception that was created against that, was created from the beginning of the GATT. Uh, it's called Article 24. And that exception says, basically, okay, you can discriminate for another country, your partner in a regional trading agreement, but on two conditions, that the goods that are affected by the preferred preferential policy represent fundamentally all the trade between the, between the two countries, so all the sectors, there can be some little exception, but basically everything has to go in there. And secondly, that the preference that you give to your country is not a preference, is not a 50% reduction in the tariff. It's 100%. So you cover all goods and you go all the way. Therefore, you see that as being a, an exercise in economic integration with the two economies. Why was that created? back in 1948, it had a dedication for the European countries. The European countries had had major wars just previously, another major war uh, 30 years previously, and another major war, uh, uh, what is it, uh, 70 years previously, okay? So uh, the way to stop all that was to promote their integration. And the European countries, led by the original six in the European communities, had that in mind to create an integration forum that became the European Economic Communities. In 1948, that was not decided. There was nothing. But the idea, the aspiration to integrate was there between France and Germany and Italy and Luxembourg and, and, uh, and, 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 and Luxembourg, Belgium and Netherlands. Um, and that ambition had to be given room to integrate. Well, to me, the 
latest example of, uh, of uh, evolution of policies since then has been the creation of the European Union. Uh, sometimes to reach it, if some country uh, that I will not name felt it was not appropriate, so they decided whatever. I hope it will be for the best for your country. But it, it has been a very important integration. So much that we don't think of the European Union as being a free trade area. It is much modern. But it is a free trade area, technically mm -hmm. it's a free trade area. Technically it's one of those uh, 400 uh, or 305, depends how you count, uh, free trade agreements. And then there's the NAFTA, and then there are many, Mexico, United uh, uh, European Union, and so on and so forth. Now, why do they make sense? Well, I believe that if countries want to integrate really, they should be able to. What should not be allowed is to use this as a means to introduce discriminatory policies. To say, I'm going to keep China out, therefore I do this with this bunch of countries, China is not part of that, or things of that kind. So, uh, have free trade agreements that go all the way, and preferably make those agreements as comprehensive as possible, in terms of coverage of goods, and in terms of country coverage. I think they are not in conflict. The conflict arises when you begin to, that that's the alpha and the omega, that that is your trade policy, the free trade agreements. Then you are wrong, because without the support of WTO, those free trade agreements will begin to look very funny 10 and 20 years from now. I gave you the example that I bet the new NAFTA would have excluded the car industry. Or the next agreement, yeah. whatever countries may exclude agriculture. So if it's not done, then it will be uh, a complement to the multilateral system. The multilateral system creates fundamental rules of engagement for everybody, and then you can go further with your neighboring countries or preferential partners. It's okay. Don't, okay. Thank, yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, let me let me bring in a question from Annalisa Somaravia from Virginia. Um, she's uh, she's raising a question that we haven't really um, addressed yet how you can bring in the environmental concerns um, into uh, this trade agreement, and particularly to the, uh, to the uh, uh, work of the WTO? Well, there are different kinds of agendas. Uh, some countries have pressed for trade and environment to be brought in, in a way that many other countries have felt uneasy. Uh, and that's something for countries to decide and to, to negotiate. The reason why some countries feel that trade uh, is a difficult subject is that if, for example, you introduce obligations, I don't know, to look after your environment when you produce the goods that you export, okay? So you're going to export and, the, and the, your commitment is that you are not going to do any more deforestation in your country or, or whatever. If you do that, uh, it may be good for the environment, it may be good for trade, but it may also be manipulated. The, the potential can exist that uh, you are, uh, you know, you have hostility between countries, that the environmental measures are not enough. Who is going to decide that they are not enough? These are very tricky areas. And uh, it's not something that I would... Sorry. Sorry, my telephone was ringing. Uh, very exciting melody, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not something that I would be uh, uh, pushing. I would be responsive and it's for 
to decide. But there's a whole lot of environmental uh, awareness that can be brought into the system on a win-win basis. And we have very little of it. So, mm -hmm. for example, everybody, again, from Liechtenstein to China and from the smallest country to the biggest, uh, from uh, Mauritius to, uh, to Russia, which is the biggest country, every country is worried today about global warming, about, uh, about the environment in a fund fundamental way. I would say I would not exclude uh, exploration if members want, because everything has to be member-driven, uh, to find an agenda where development and care for the environment move together. Uh, in-house issues and development. That can be an agenda where you can look at negative causality in both directions. How the environment can hit development and trade. For example, we to have awful storms worse than historical levels, uh, wiping out whole islands in the Caribbean or doing some other damage. So you can have bad causality from environment to trade. And you can also have bad causality from trade to the environment. So you could find a balanced agenda where uh, there could be progress. And in fact, when I am asked, what is my agenda as director general? My agenda, in terms of negotiations, there are many things apart from negotiations, including dispute settlement. But in terms of negotiations, I would push hard to complete the four negotiations right now on the way on fishery subsidies, which relates a lot to the environment, to cities that deplete the, the fishing stocks in the oceans. So that has to be completed soon. And then uh, three other uh, negotiations on the way on investment facilitation and regulations in services and electronic commerce. And then the new agenda. And for the new agenda, my sense is that two items that uh, I hope have enough support across the membership are agricultural distortionary subsidies and, uh, and uh, market taxes in a balanced way that takes care of all the countries concerned. And at the same time, uh, green economy and development. I very much hope that can be part of what we do uh, in the near future and beyond. Thank you very much. Since uh, we are a UK-based institution, uh, many of the participants are in the UK on this panel. Uh, can I ask um, uh, the question that is raised by Frances de Souza? The question being is that it is to the UK and the Brexit uh, question. Uh, possible that the UK will depart the EU under WTO terms. Um, given the enormous pressure in economic uncertainty, also political uncertainty, how confident is the panel that the WTO will be provide an adequate framework uh, for, for, for the new trade policy as it is under pressure itself um, and, and how it will be able to monitor um, you know, the post-Brexit WTO terms uh, British trade, global trade uh, policy? And maybe I, 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 I ask uh, Vince first uh, to go first on this. Well, when British politicians used, used the phrase WTO terms, um, I think that they're using it on different levels. I mean, there are some who are just not quite sure what it means, and they're just saying, well, you know, we want world free trade, uh, and we, we don't mm -hmm. want any obstacles anywhere. Um, there are others who really do understand the implications. Um, uh, I think in, in practical terms, um, if we do leave at the end of the year without any agreement, 
um, you know, the intention of, you know, the British government is going to be faced with the fact that, um, you know, high tariffs are going to come in on um, beef and dairy products. Um, yeah, and what the British government is saying, and I, I'd, I'd be interested in the ambassador's view about this, is that, that you know, we, we're not actually going to apply these restrictions on imports to spare British consumers, um, which I think is not legally correct. I mean, I, I think that they're treating these obligations as purely discretionary. Um, but either way, you know, we, we are faced with a, a serious mess at the end of the year, actually, because I think we've now passed the point at which a fully negotiated uh, bilateral agreement with the EU is negotiable. I think we've got past that point and we are going to have a rather brutal exit or one where some of the um, you know, administrative points are finessed, but, but we are going to be leaving the European Union without, without any kind of substantial agreement. And then there's a the question about what in practice WTO terms mean as opposed to the rhetoric. Mr. Ambassador? Well, I can only make a general comment uh, uh, as a question of uh, elementary prudence, but also because I'm not there to really know the, the debate and the scene as uh, in-depth as I used to, because I used to be, uh, uh, you know, to live and to be a professor in the UK. Uh, I think the fact that the UK uh, exits the European Union is a pretty clear balance, it gives you a weakening of the benefits in the union at the same time as you uh, weaken the obligations. So it gives you the freedom to do other things. So this freedom means that the United Kingdom will now be free to negotiate uh, free trade terms uh, on its own right, uh, on its own terms, with everybody in the world. Now, it seems that uh, everyone in the world probably should mean first the European Union, which is neighbor and very important partner. Uh, so it is for you guys to decide what is feasible and what is not. Uh, and uh, other than that, uh, to get on with negotiating with the rest of the world. And I'm sure that everybody will be extremely interested because it's a, an important economy and the, uh, uh, the, 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 the birthplace of free trade and free trade mentality. Uh, so, uh, but uh, exactly what, what will be the terms between the UK and the European Union as of 1st January next year is for you to define it. And, uh, and uh, uh, the trade of this uh, is always uh, clear that uh, the better you do it, the, the greater the benefits. Uh, but uh, I cannot go beyond that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Eric, I'm looking to you. It's probably, we are probably uh, um, around the end of the question time. And uh, I would turn back the floor to you then with deep thanks to the panelists. Thank you very much. And, and very sorry that we had uh, 54 questions from the audience. So it was impossible to, to accommodate everybody. We will uh, make those questions available to the ambassador to, to um, to uh, the other panelists as well. So we have, I think we have had a very um, balanced discussion on, on the, the sort of state of the WTO. You, there is, it's, you could probably have had more criticism um, and sort of the half empty discussion could have been uh, more severe. But I would think what came out was, was 
very clear that there is also a story where the WTO has, has prevented the kind of collapse that we saw, for example, in the in, in the 1930s in in in, the, in Europe and, and the United States. And we have there have been still a role for WTO to play as a reference point for for other either uh, plurilateral or, or um, bilateral um, arrangements. So, and, and as the, the ambassador said, you know, we, 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 had we not had it, or if we were to lose it, we would have to reinvent it. And then <laughs> I think it's hopefully, this is not what will be the outcome. And, and we know that this is an incredibly long and, and difficult process. And, and uh, so we hope that like Wimbledon, the WTO will come back in full <laughs> next year. But we also hope that, like in some other areas of, of, sort of policy, that we can build back better, as the kind of uh, cliche now says. But, you know, re really trying to indicate directions of reform. I think you have uh, suggested some yourself. You spoke about the independence of the appellate body and, and uh, you know, to reaffirm that. You, know, you said that there are things we can learn from regional and bilateral agreements. Uh, you mentioned also some lessons from the uh, US uh, MCA, the new NAFTA. And, and so I think there are opportunities uh, that a new director general needs to, to grab. And, and you described, you, you explained the resignation of the, of the um, uh, current uh, director general by the fact that he will, the new person, he or she uh, will have to um, be part of shaping the new vision and also be part of, of implementing that vision. And, and uh, we hope that whoever is doing that, um, the, uh, this will lead to a, a new life for, for WTO. So, Mr. Ambassador, thank you so much for, for being with us here and, and the best of luck in this uh, process. And, and uh, we very much hope that we will have you back at uh, LSE, hopefully in, in person and not just uh, over over the, uh, uh, the screen. So thank you very much. And thank you to all those who came. And thank you to the panelists, of course, for, for their um, enlightened remarks. So thank you very much.